That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast every week because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. I don't want you or anyone you love going through the aftermath of anything like that or worse. Our interview today is very special. I will be speaking with Iori Mochizuki, the blogger behind one of our favorite information sources, Fukushima Diary. That will be coming up in about 10 minutes, so stay tuned. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. Historic news here in the United States, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has denied a reactor license. A three-judge Nuclear Regulatory Commission Atomic Safety and Licensing Board, the ASLB, on August 30th denied a license for the proposed Calvert Cliff Street nuclear reactor on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. In a 29-page decision, the ASLB agreed with interveners that the Calvert Cliffs III project would be in violation of the Atomic Energy Act's prohibition against foreign ownership, control, or domination, and that the project's owner, Unistar Nuclear, is eligible neither to receive a license nor to even apply for a license. Unistar is 100% owned by the French government's Electricité de France. This is only the second time in history a reactor license has been denied by an Atomic Safety and Licensing Board. The first was a license application for the Byron Reactor in Illinois in 1984, which was briefly denied because of quality assurance problems at the site. But that decision was quickly overturned on appeal, as the utility already had instituted a program to correct the problems. Our situation is not over yet. So we need to hold on to the champagne for just a little while longer because the ASLB is giving Unistar 60 more days to find a U.S. partner that might enable it to meet the foreign ownership restrictions before the ASLB declares the proceedings concluded. The decision noted that Unistar already has had nearly two years since it became solely owned by EDF to find a partner and has not shown any progress towards that. Unistar can appeal this decision to the NRC commissioners. According to Michael Marriott, Executive Director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, which first filed the contention on foreign ownership, this is a great day for Maryland. Marylanders need not fear another dangerous nuclear reactor in our state, nor the accumulation of still more lethal radioactive waste on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. Marriott added, but this is also a blow to the so-called nuclear renaissance. In the summer of 2007, Calvert Cliffs III became the first new reactor project to submit even a partial application in about 30 years. It was the flagship of the nuclear renaissance, and now it is a symbol of the deservedly failed revival of nuclear power in the U.S. That Unistar has been unable to find a single U.S. utility to partner with in this extraordinarily expensive project speaks volumes about the lack of genuine interest in new nuclear reactors in the United States. So it looks like the tide is turning, and we actually won one. In a story that is not related but should be, the day before this decision about Calvert Cliffs came down, that nuclear site experienced a transformer explosion near a turbine building. Yet another usual NRC unusual event. In Southern California, 
the California Public Utilities Commission announced that it will hold hearings this fall into whether ratepayers should go on paying for the San Onofre nuclear power plant even when it isn't generating any power. None of this is good for local residents, upon whom Southern California Edison is hoping to pin the price tag for repairs and restart, nor for the local communities and schools, and will no doubt extend to the long-term resident workers who may be forced to find new jobs and relocate. Local business owners report that the mood of workers is growing more and more pessimistic as the reactor remains shut down and many workers are wondering if they will ever be restarted. In a press release, Edison admitted, we see the reality that Unit 3 will not be operating for some time. It is too soon and would be inappropriate to speculate on what is needed for repair for Unit 3. Ratepayers have already been forced to pay over $670 million to replace the steam generators, and it is likely that repairs required to bring both units back to operable condition would push that price tag well over a billion dollars. If one or both of the reactors remains shut down until November, the CPUC, California Public Utilities Commission, may determine to roll back rates, which may essentially be a death penalty for the power plant. Once there's an issue of can they do it, can the units be repaired, and then if they can, there's the question of whether it's cost-effective, said Mark Pachta, Program Manager for the California Public Utilities Commission's Division of Ratepayer Advocates. In the early 1990s, the Unit 1 reactor at San Onofre was also subject to a cost-benefit analysis prior to being decommissioned. After determining that it would have cost hundreds of millions of dollars to reopen, the CPUC determined that ratepayers would not be liable, rather Edison shareholders would be. The decommissioning of Unit 1 is still not completed. Even the core is still on site, and it will require funds from the owners in order to decommission. A statement released in 2011 estimated it would take about $3.7 billion to decommission all three units at San Onofre. Meanwhile, Southern California anti-nuclear activists are spreading word among solar and other green businesses about the need to offer jobs to some of the 730 San Onofre workers soon to be let go. There is also the thought that these men and women can be retrained to work on decommissioning the facility, a process estimated to take 10 years at minimum. Dr. Michael Nobel, who is a member of the Nobel family, famous, of course, for the Nobel Prize, is the co-founder and chairman at the Nobel Charitable Fund and an award-winning scientist and consultant on energy issues. He said in this interview with CBS in Atlanta, he was, quote, very concerned, as many scientists are, because elevated levels of radioactive contamination have been detected throughout Japan, and what is almost even worse is that this radiation has also shown up in Hawaii and in the western United States, specifically in milk and water sources. Finally, the food safety issue is starting to emerge, and this is going to get much bigger. Over in Japan, the Osaka Prefectural and Municipal Governments on Tuesday, September 4th, that's today, called for a halt to the operation of the two reactors at the Ui Power Plant in Fukushima Prefecture ahead of the end of this summer's more than two-month power-saving period. Kansai Electric restarted the number three and number four reactors at the four-reactor Ui plant in July. In a joint statement adopted at their meeting on energy earlier today, the two local governments said the two reactors should be shut down, noting the demand-supply situation for electric power is not so tight and that many Japanese nationals now want a nuclear-free Japan. 
Also in Japan, the earthquake that spawned a tsunami and nuclear crisis last year also spurred an increase in heart-related ailments and pneumonia, according to a new study. The weekly figures for heart failure, the inability of the muscle to pump enough blood around the body, and pneumonia jumped soon after the earthquake, according to Japanese researchers. The result was sustained for more than six weeks after the tsunami struck, compared with the previous three years, they said. The new study is the first to examine the long-term effects on heart health, the researchers said. The data also provide the first evidence that the incidence of heart failure rose over a long period after the disaster. And a reminder that cesium-137 is not a slow-acting isotope, but it immediately attaches to and damages muscle in the body, including the heart muscle. In 2011, there were more patients for heart failure, stroke, cardiac arrest, and pneumonia, all signs of radiation exposure, than in 2008, 2009, and 2010 combined. Now, we have two nominees for the Nuclear Numbnuts of the Week Award. I'll read the runner-up first. And that is that Fukushima Prefecture is still trying to attract tourists, specifically high school students from Tokyo. This item is coming directly from Fukushima Diary, and we will be talking with the blogger who created that and posted that in just a short time. But here's the story. About 700,000 students used to visit Fukushima for school trips every year but 90% of them canceled in 2011. Tourism in 2012 is still less than it was before the accident happened in Fukushima. Now, the Fukushima prefectural government is trying to get students back from the Kanto area, which is in Tokyo. On September 4th, again today, they attended the meeting of principals of metropolitan high schools in Tokyo. According to the sightseeing department of Fukushima Prefecture, I can just imagine how busy they are these days, the rest of the prefecture is recovering financially, but the tsunami-related area is not. They hope the educational staff will tell parents that Fukushima is safe, that the radiation is not harmful. It is not at a harmful level aside from the area around the Fukushima plant. Boy. They also have the possibility of staging another marathon for teenage girls like the one they did five months after the disaster in and around Fukushima. So that's the runner-up for the Numbnuts of the Week Award, but this one really takes the cake. Saitama Prefecture is going to start recycling disaster debris by turning it into cement. Three local governments in Saitama are going to accept debris from the Fukushima Daiichi disaster up to 11,300 tons of it. This will be shared amongst three cement factories and will be incinerated. The ash is going to be the material used in the cement. The companies involved are Taiheo Cement and Mitsubishi Material. I don't know if that's the same Mitsubishi that's behind the steam generators at San Onofre, but if so, whew, shame on them. So the Nuclear Numbnuts of the Week does go to the three local governments for wanting to create cement and build houses out of Fukushima's radioactive debris. Finally, from Japan, Arnie Gunderson was there visiting and was presented and sponsored by Green Action Japan. He was speaking with lawmakers in the Diet, which is Japan's parliament. He was asked a question about the Diet's reaction to his comments about the Unit 4 fuel pool and the dangers there, and had he seen any indications that the government would be willing to accept outside help. To which Arnie Gunderson replied, There were about ten parliamentarians, lawmakers, in the meeting. Afterwards, the parliamentarians contacted me. 
No, they did not believe the NISA, the Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency, which is responsible for the administration of nuclear safety issues in Japan. They did not believe NISA or TEPCO. The remainder of the crowd laughed out loud when TEPCO was mentioned. So one of the people who's been very involved in showing up just how naked the lies are in Japan is my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat, and I'm delighted to have him. Iori Cheshire Mochizuki, I hope I pronounced that right, I've been slaughtering Japanese all day today. He writes the Fukushima Diary blog, where he shares on-the-ground information of what's happening to the people of Japan in the wake of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. He's kind of the opposite of TEPCO. A resident of Yokohama, but is right now in the United States in preparation for his participation in the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear-Free Future. Fukushima Diary continues to be read by approximately 10,000 people a day, and I am proud to be one of them. Iori, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Uh, thank you for welcoming me. I'm really pleased. We're pleased to have you here. So give us a picture of what your life was like before March 11th of 2011. Uh, I was just a normal, ordinary boy in 20s. Uh, I was working for my father's company. A civil engineer. Uh, um, before that, I graduated my, from my university and worked for um, one of the major electric appliances company and started working for my father's company about five years ago. But I had almost never gone out of Japan because I was not a big fan of traveling and I was just, and I just liked going out in weekends for Tokyo or something. That, that was the only fun thing of my doing. Or just ordinary person before March 11. What was the immediate impact on you of the earthquake, tsunami, and shortly after that, your awareness of the nuclear disaster? Um, I was even shocked and sad for the victims of the earthquake and tsunami disaster. Uh, but I even cried, but I wasn't so pessimistic about that because when I was 10 years old, uh, I was in I was in Tokyo, but um, I saw what happened in Osaka. No, in in Kobe, there was another big earthquake in Kansai Western Japan area. They went through a big earthquake. There was no tsunami area, but actually the magnitude was bigger than the latest earthquake. So I thought um, I believe they can recover just after earthquake in tsunami. If it was only those two disasters, but like nuclear disaster is totally different. Um, immediately after the reactor one exploded, I understand. I understood. Um, I have to evacuate. I have to go somewhere else, hopefully for rest. And I immediately understood I could never eat seafood anymore for the rest of my life, especially from Pacific Ocean. And I called my friends in Malaysia to send me canned fish from buying from Singapore or somewhere. That's what I did, and I started preparing for evacuation. What moved you to start writing Fukushima Diary? Um, That wasn't my idea. Uh, Like in May of last year, uh, I really wanted to collect information. Just after the 
the disaster, it was kind of easy to collect information from major media like Yomiuri newspaper or NHK or something. Everyone reported, but gradually it decreased. So I had to make some effort. And every time I got some information, I put it on Facebook because I wanted everyone out of Japan know what is actually happening and how significant the nuclear disaster is. And then um, one of my Indian friends who was an activist, anti-nuclear activist, gave me his blog. He asked me to write something about his blog. So I wrote uh, five or six articles for his blog. And six hours later, the blog was shut down because of DDoS attack by someone else. So there was a, a denial of service for the blog once it was once the articles that you had written were posted. Yes, exactly. The server was in India. Uh, I don't know who did it. Um, um, maybe maybe the next day, another reader of my another friend of my Facebook friends um, made me a blog with WordPress called Fukushima Diary and offered me to write something on the blog, and I started writing it. And you've kept going with it. Where have you gotten your information from? Uh, mostly on Twitter. And yeah, 90% from Twitter and the 10% from Google or, or other blogs or sometimes on Facebook. But 100% from the Internet because the Internet is way faster. The fastest way is Twitter. Twitter was the most useful and the fastest tool since just after March 11. We knew meltdown was going on from Twitter like um, one month before the Japanese government declared actually meltdown happened. So I still trust Twitter is the most trustworthy media and it's the fastest still. Do you find that people are trusting you with their information, with their stories, because you have this blog and they know that you can get the word out. Yeah, I think so. But um, more than 80% of the readers trust what I write. Um, it's like um, Wikipedia. 100% of the article can't be totally 100% correct. So it always needs some correction and advice of readers or something. But that's how internet media goes. So I always try to make it more correct hearing advice of people and readers. But um, I only write things that I fully believe it's true. It's concrete. So I believe I write authentic things and most of my readers think the same way too. You left Japan in December of 2011. Why did you do that? Why? Um, I thought I have to evacuate since just after March 11, but at the time I, I still had my work, of course, and I had my pets, two turtles, and I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have so many friends outside of Japan. And I didn't have any way to make money by quitting my father's job, so I wanted to evacuate, but I couldn't. And but uh, I started Fukushima Diary, maybe it was in July, and it started getting more and more readers. 
and probably I thought probably um it can make some money for me through advertisement or donation. And in September I I swear myself like okay I have to evacuate in two months, which was my birthday. And but after all it took one more month but uh since since last summer I plan to evacuate at least by the winter of last year. I I was really sick. I really had many symptoms from probably a lot of exposure or radiation, like diarrhea or constant endless coughing or headache or something. I had to evacuate sooner or later. So where were you able to go when you evacuated? At first, I went to South France uh, because uh, a really, really, really nice family offered me a homestay. Um, they offered me they allowed me to stay there for up to one year. Actually, I stayed there only for three months, but that was such a confidence for me. And I, I managed to think, okay, okay, I can live out of Japan, and pro- probably even if something happens, they can be a big help of me. And I got confidence of my getting out of Japan and living out of Japan, and I went there. And so, where have you gone since then in your many travels? By kind of using South France as kind of like my base of my second travel, I went to Spain, uh, Netherlands, Romania, Tunisia, and Australia. And I across the Atlantic Ocean and went to Canada and Army U.S. During these times, did you meet up with supporters of the Fukushima Diary blog? Did you were you able to meet people around the world who have been following you on the blog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was always supported and helped helped by the readers of Fukushima Diary in almost every country. And even if I couldn't meet meet them because of the time schedule or something. They always send me emails to like, uh, if you come to the city like Barcelona next time, uh, probably I can host you, so please feel free to come here or anytime or anything. The only thing that stopped me going was just visa and flights because it was too expensive. The, the kind of legal things. My Most of my readers were always big help for me. That's wonderful because we are an international community pulling together on the exact same issue. And yeah. we need everybody we can get to move forward. So what about your family and all this? Are they still back in Japan? And yeah. what do they think about what's been happening for you? They? Yes, yeah, still, still there in Yokohama, probably living as if nothing happened. But by the time I evacuated, they already had they were already suffering from diarrhea. I mean, my parents, both of my parents, diarrhea and pain, pain of joints, finger joints. They couldn't even have chopsticks or pens because their hands were painful. Um, to me, that was obvious that they were having a lot of symptoms. Do they recognize the symptoms as being that of the exposure to radiation? I I always told them and still telling them that you have to evacuate because you are having obviously having a lot of symptoms. But um, probably my mother 
understood what I what I was trying to mean, but my my father is denying to understand it. He doesn't want to accept what actually happened and what is happening to his own body. So I'm kind of doing well with my mother, but I'm an only child, but I'm not really doing well with my father. He he doesn't understand why I evacuated. I'm so sorry to hear that. So where do you see yourself and your blog and the work you're doing going? What do you think it's going to lead to, or what would you like it to lead to? Last autumn, Fukushima Diary um, grew so fast, and now it's one of the major uh, anti-nuclear blogs in the world. Uh, I think, I hope it to grow more. Um, but probably, I, I think I should cover more topics except, except for Fukushima disaster, like Three Mile, uh, Three Miles Island disaster or Chernobyl. Uh, still so many people suffering from the symptoms. And also, there are lots of nuclear plants in France and, of course, in America, too. I have to... I think it should be the web media to spread to spread news about nuclear information in a more like more like casual way and like no normal people is talking in front of you in a cafe or something. Now you're going to be attending the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear Free Future, which is being held in Washington DC on September twentieth through twenty second. Why are you going and what do you hope to accomplish there? I'm really honored to be able to attend that that meeting. Um, I really wanted to go there last year. I, I think um, they were having something new than last year, but I couldn't go there because I was still working for my father's company. But now I finally got a chance, so I'm really excited. And I and I, I don't know how much chances I will be given, but um, if I hopefully I want to I want as many people as possible to know what is happening in Japan. I mean, it's not only Fukushima disaster. It's like, like you mentioned before interviewing me, uh, incineration of disaster debris. The Japanese government is trying to spread all the debris to all around in Japan, even to Saipan. And um, last month, Osaka, which was the second or the third biggest city, decided to accept um, disaster debris from Iwate, or from disaster area, um, it affects people and it contaminates agricultural products, local agricultural products. Um, Western Japan was the only evacuation area for people living in Eastern Japan, but they are losing more and more places to evacuate. Um, I heard the contamination even reached Okinawa, which is a remote island of Japan. So Japanese Japanese people are losing more and more places to evacuate for. Um, it's controlled by Ministry of Environment. I don't know what they are thinking, but um, I really want the world people, international people, to know it. Um, try to press push Japanese government stop it some way. Do you see yourself ever returning to Japan? Uh, I left my pets, like I said before, on two turtles. Uh, now my friend took them over, but 
hopefully I want to take them out of Japan because they are living in water and I know tap water is also contaminating them. They are still in Yokohama. So, um, I don't know, but probably I'll go back to Japan only once to get my turtles back. That'll be the last time for me to go back to Japan. We have a few minutes. If there's anybody on the line who would like to ask Iori any questions, you can unmute yourself by hitting star six. Oh uh, yeah, I have a question. Hi, Hello. hi, Yuri. This is uh, yes, my name is Nick. Nick Davis. Nick. I uh, I follow you on uh, Facebook. I want to ask you about um, Tepco. about the fuel pool four. Uh, I was wondering if, in your opinion, the uh, the Tepco and the government are reluctant to accept outside help because in the past, uh, from the beginning of this disaster. Uh, other companies from around the world, they came in to try to make money from the mm-hmm. disaster. They came like in order to sell technology, yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe now TEPCO and the government feels that other people want to profit. Uh, do you think it's this suspicion that is causing them to uh, to uh, deny all these offers of help, or is it more just some kind of... Um, psychological framework, uh, some pride or something, I don't know. So you're asking me why Japanese government and TEPCO didn't accept international help, like from GE or some other companies? Well, not from a company, but from a government more. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the, the matter of pride, and they may have something to hide in the plant, but I don't know. I should... Uh, I won't say just something concrete. So uh-huh. um, I think that's just a matter of financial and pride. Um, mm. The other issue is, as a civil engineer, I kind of suspect the ground, the quality of the ground in Fukushima, yeah. where Fukushima plants are standing long, uh, I think it's becoming weak because of the tide, tsunami, and any earthquake. So they want to hide the fact. Hmm. So they don't want, like, international help or other government won't come to Fukushima plant and check how solid it is. That's how I think. Uh-huh. Somebody also said that they're afraid if we go in to help their uh, U.S. companies or don't want to talk about it because all the reactors here, well, many of them, are the same type of reactor, they could have the same problem. They don't want to make uh, news of how all these reactors are going to have problems in the future. TEPCO is even, I, I heard it's just a rumor now, but they even tried to restart reactor five and six probably. Heard, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So have, they have a different view from us. Uh, can I ask one question? Ask one you final question and then we need to move on. Yes. What can you... What can us in the U.S. do to help more to uh, to stabilize Fukushima and and all the other problems in Japan now? Send more people. I hope them to send more nuclear workers. Um, I know that'll be a hard job, but, but the worst thing I'm afraid of is conscription of Japanese people because obviously Japanese government and TEPCO are short of nuclear workers. So the only solution is to 
collect normal Japanese people and let them go to Fukushima to help them. But obviously that is that is wrong because we are the victims. So um, I want them to send some nuclear workers and of course with robots and technology and and everything. But um, even without my wishing, I think that'll be the way it will go. Like, I mean, Japanese government and TEPCO will need international support at the end after all. Um, because obviously, obviously they can't control everything by themselves. So whether they want to or they hate it, um, in a few years, I think um, some of the countries like France or, or America will have to go to Kushima. Yes. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much for your questions, Nick. And thank you, Iori, so much for the generosity of your time and your answers and all the work that you do to uh, put your blog together and get it out into the world so consistently. Thank you. I'll go back to my work. <laughs> Iori Mochizuki, Mochizuki writes the Fukushima Diary blog, and we've been delighted to have you today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Here's a final thought. The people of India need our support. There is now a petition online for the closing down of the Kudankulam nuclear reactors, the ones where nonviolent protests earlier this year sparked Gandhi-like hunger strikes and 10,000 women at a time protesting. Now here's something you can do to help them. The link to this petition will be up on the nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog page under today's episode, which is number 64. Please go there. Click on the link and take the minute it will take you to sign. After all, Earth is a rock in the middle of a bubble in the middle of nowhere. What happens on Earth stays on Earth, so let's make your voices heard. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 4th, 2012. You can find our episodes posted on NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. On the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat pages, we have two. And I invite you to like us, really like us. You can also find us on iTunes Podcast, where you can subscribe. Feel free to share the link and forward the downloads. And if you have any thoughts on how to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send an email to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Don't go back to sleep. <laughs>